you can tell that this system is building the natural capital of this area. It's beautiful, it's harmonious, and it's working, and the yields are actually going up, not down. So there's nothing particularly magical about what we're doing. We're just farming in harmony with nature, but I'm absolutely convinced that farming systems like this could be applied all over the world, regardless of the difference in soils, climate, scale of farms, etc. Welcome to Fortnum's Hungry Minds podcast. My name is Tom Parker Bowles and I'm delighted to be speaking with Patrick Holden, the internationally acclaimed activist and founding director of the Sustainable Food Trust. A self-proclaimed hippie at heart, Patrick's life mission is to fast forward the transition towards more sustainable food systems. If that wasn't enough to keep him busy, he and his wife Becky own a successful organic farm and together they raise eight children in the bucolic surroundings of West Wales. In 2016, Patrick received the coveted Judge's Choice Award at the Fortnum and Mason Food and Drink Awards. And at the same ceremony, three years later, he passed the baton to His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales by presenting the special award. Quoting Patrick in his acceptance speech, Prince Charles said he is a pioneer far more successful than I am. That brings us to our topic for today's podcast, sustainability in food. And what better time to take stock and learn how we can make improvements in the way we purchase and consume ingredients. So let's get started. Uh, hi, Patrick. Uh, hello, Tom. <laughs> uh, that's a very kind introduction. Um, thank you. Very, very fitting, Patrick. Now, let me starting back to the 70s. I mean, you started a community farm back in the 70s, didn't you? How, how was that? Yes, uh, I was a Londoner who got back to the land it was that time when there was a sort of shift in the state of consciousness of a whole generation of young people, of which I was one. And uh, I spent some time in California, came back to the UK, thought the best thing to do was to get back to the land and live a self-sufficient life happily ever after in a commune. Yeah. The commune didn't last too long, but the farm did last. And so I'm sitting here at the farm in West Wales, 10 miles from the coast. We milked the cows this morning and cheese making is going on outside. And it's now the longest established organic dairy farm in Wales. And you must come and see it. I would love to. Now, your cheese. Now, well, I mean, is it just dairy you're doing down there? Well, along the road, we've grown all sorts of things. We used to grow wheat and millet for the local whole food shop in Aberystwyth. And then for a long time, actually 26 years, we grew carrots, which we sold to whole food shops in London and Crank's restaurant and then to supermarkets. And then, you know, the supermarkets centralised all their packing stations, moved them all to East Anglia. So we had to give up, which we did in about 2006. So now we are concentrating on cheese, but actually we're practising the principles of the circular economy here. So in addition to producing cheese, of course, we have some cows, both uh, at the end of their lives, the milking cows, but also the male bull calves, which we rear for ruby veal, uh, which are absolutely delicious, uh, are partly on the way from the cheese making. And, and this is so. This is all as a happy, healthy farm. We're in a time at the moment where the spotlight has been put on farming more than ever on British food systems, on supply systems. How do you think that British farmers have adapted to this to this pandemic crisis? Well, I think on the one hand, you could say, well, the supermarkets cope magnificently, and the shelves are never completely empty. But on the other hand, I think. Rather like animals that know when the tsunami is coming, a lot of us feel we've had a bit of a near miss. And instinctively, we'd like to make a closer connection with the people who actually produce our food and know more about it. So as a result of that, there's been an absolute explosion of interest in 
you know, internet sales of food directly from the farm in box schemes in uh, virtual farmers markets. And I think this is going to persist after COVID reseeds, at least I hope so. I think that there's a shift of attitude going on right now amongst the public. We need to know more about the story behind our food, who produced it, how they farmed, and ideally we'd like to connect with them and we'd like to know there's a sense of security between the farmers that produce our food and ourselves because that actually is the the most robust and sustainable food system for the future. And you've been talking about this, Patrick, for years, you know, the importance of, of proper food networks, the importance of sustainability, uh, of traceability, all these things that you and many others have been talking about and, and saying how important it is. Do you feel that, ironically, through the, the whole general nightmare of this, of this lockdown, that something good will come out of it, that we will look more closely at how our food is produced and where it comes from? Definitely. Absolutely. Certainly. Because... All of us would like to know more about the story behind our food. And one indication of it is the sales of seeds. You know, they're they're experiencing unprecedented interest. That's very exciting. It suggests that we all have an appetite to produce food ourselves. And if we cannot be completely self-sufficient, which obviously you can't be if you live in a city, you can take active steps to source more of your food from producers whose story is known to you. And I think all the retailers and the small shops and the people who have launched internet schemes are going to prosper because of that new public appetite for better food. And we saw a lot, especially towards the beginning of the crisis, where you go into the supermarkets and like you say, supermarkets aren't all bad. There are some things that they do well, like provide food on a, on a mass level for lots of people. I was going into my local, I can say Sainsbury's, it was the local Sainsbury's. And, you know, while beef farmers were saying, you know, we're desperate to get our meat into the food systems, there was Irish beef. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Irish beef, but in times of crisis, should it make more sense to have British beef in there? Yes, and I, I personally think that supermarkets could be part of this new food system that we need to replace the one we've got at the moment but it won't be easy you mentioned Sainsbury's in fact it was Sainsbury's that was was selling my carrots until they moved their pack house to Peterborough but um, I know one of the senior people in Sainsbury's and I had a conversation with her right at the beginning of Covid and said look there's a new interest amongst your own customers in sourcing more local food are you going to respond to it and she said yes we are And I think a number of the supermarkets, even right up to the chief executive level, are mindful of this new thing, but it's hard for them to respond because they're like a super tanker. They've centralised everything. All their supplies come from fewer and fewer farms and packing stations. And how on earth would they reconnect with a tiny carrot, ex-carrot grower like myself, or indeed buy my cheese, because they like to buy in volume. But I think that in the long term, those supermarkets that respond to this change will thrive and those that don't may even go out of business. That's how strong I think the change that's sweeping through the land is. That's very heartening news. I was, I was interviewing Jamie Oliver, who you know well, last week, and he was talking about, obviously, the campaign to save the small artisan cheesemongers, of, w- of which, obviously, you're one. But it showed that the British public came together, for, you know, Jamie, people like Jenny Linford and writers all came together and said, look, Graham Kirkham or whoever is in danger of, of going out of business. Jamie said he went to go and speak to Tesco and Tesco were like, OK, fine. This is an emergency. We can start getting small cheesemakers in, which is all brilliant for now but do you think that that is sustainable in the future you say they're gonna have to change the way they work supermarkets to do that well it's hard for supermarkets who are used to buying enormous volumes at the cheapest possible price 
to pay the true cost of food and also source many more varieties, for instance, of cheese from small producers because it's just not what they normally do. Farmers that supply supermarkets have become commodity slaves. They're selling at a lower and lower price and very often they're having to farm more and more intensively in order to get the price that cheap. But of course, the artisan cheesemakers that Jamie's been supporting and championing, of which we are one, they are farming in a different way and their products are more expensive. They're, they're actually, the price that you see for the artisan cheesemakers is the true price, whereas the apparently cheap industrial cheese, chicken, vegetables that you buy in the supermarket actually have hidden costs associated with their production which are not charged on the price label, but actually we're all paying for in hidden ways. So I think in order for local food and sustainable food to become more mainstream, we have to have a more honest pricing system with the polluter pay and the government redirecting the subsidies so that they support the farmers who are farming sustainably and the ones who are really industrial don't get anything. And do you think there's hope with the new farming minister? It seems, you know, another day, another farming minister. They seem to change as often as you change your sheets. Um, Mr. Eustace, there, there's a huge problem at the moment, as you well know, um, about this, this bill going through Parliament that seems to have slipped through without anyone noticing at all, which will allow... You explain. What's just gone through Parliament? What's the bill? What does it involve that Parliament have just passed about British agriculture? Well, it's interesting you raised the government issue because uh, I was rather a fan of Michael Gove when he was in DEFRA. But then, of course, he was moved on. And I'm less of a fan of those who have replaced him, because not because I dislike them, but just because I don't think they really get it in relation to the issues we're discussing. And uh, I think that the agriculture bill, which, as you say, was rushed through because of the desire to get Brexit done, is deficient in many respects. It's not really an agriculture or food bill. It's got lots of sort of green frilly bits, uh, nice words, but actually there's very little substance. And one of its key deficiencies is that it will open the door for food that is imported in this country from, say, America, but it could be other countries throughout the world, to lower standards, thus undermining the fortunes of our home producers who may well hopefully be producing to higher standards. So what we need is a new international arrangement, agreement, rather like the Paris Agreement, for trade between nations. We should only really allow sustainable food to be traded. And we could easily do that if we had a new system of evaluating the sustainability of all farms throughout the world using a common language. I actually met the woman who is heading up the U.S., side of the food trade negotiation. She's a smart lady and she was appointed by Obama and somehow she survived the Trump administration until now. I said to her, look, let's not talk about chlorinated chicken. Let's talk about a new sustainable trading arrangement. And she thought that was a great idea. So we'll see what happens. But I have to say, you can imagine that the, the Liam Foxes of this world who want to open our country up to free trade, I don't think that they care very much about protecting our farmers. No, and, 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 and this is the worrying thing. I mean, funnily enough, moving on to a different part of farming, at the beginning when everyone was panic buying and buying all the chicken breasts and the mints and whatever, British or not British, what struck me and what was left behind were a lot of these uh, meat substitutes, the, the, the vegan, the highly processed uh, meat substitutes that people suddenly, when things got desperate, didn't seem to want as much as they did before. We've talked at length about how there's a whole argument that says that eating meat is bad for the environment. 
Now, you very, very lucidly and, and wisely argue why actually eating the right sort of meat can be very good for the environment. Yes, I think that both with livestock products, meat and dairy products, and with plant products, we need to be able to differentiate between uh, the food which is part of the problem and that which is part of the solution. So in relation to livestock, of course we want to, if we want to eat in line with the needs of the planet and our own health, we need to shift away from our present apparently insatiable appetite for industrial chicken, uh, intensive pork and dairy products from these horrible mega dairies and instead buy meat from sustainable farming systems in the case of beef and sheep, ideally mainly grass-fed or exclusively grass-fed, or dairy products from a system like mine here in West Wales. But we certainly need to avoid eating grain-fed and mainly grain-fed uh, beef from feedlots or chickens from factories kept in conditions that if you saw them, you'd never want to buy a chicken again. And crucially, a bit like the prayer, we need to know the difference between the two. And exactly the same thing applies to plants. I mean, of course, we want to have a more plant-based diet, but we don't want to eat genetically modified soy or palm oil or intensively produced avocados from the other side of the planet because they're not good for the environment or the soil or indeed our health. So I think the challenge here, and it sounds uh, perhaps rather a stretch, but I think we can rise to it, is for all of us to become much more expert about the difference between the good stories behind our food and those which aren't so good and use our buying power to support the producers who are part of the solution. And I believe that COVID, for all its horror, has actually awoken the public to want to do that. And you have, I mean, talking of Fortnum's, Fortnum's are great levers in, in sourcing the best. Pete Hannon's beef uh, from Northern Ireland and Daphne Tilly's fantastic Welsh lamb. She's a wonderful lady and wonderful lamb. But is it still seen, not necessarily organic, but, but let's say properly reared meat and, and livestock, is that still seen as an elite thing, as expensive, and it, it won't feed the general population? You know, it's, it's all very well for us to wag our fingers from our ivory towers or, or from your wonderful rolling hills. But can all of the UK eat well and still be able to afford it? Yes, I th I'm a great fan of Fortnum's. I think Ewan Venters is a great leader and he has made a mission uh, to seek out more sustainable products, which, as you say, can be rather expensive. And my cheese, our cheese, Havod, is in Fortnum's, and it is, uh, by the time it gets into Fortnum's, it is, I have to say, very expensive. But one of the reasons why there's such a price differential between the sort of food that actually would be good for the planet and our health if it went mainstream and the cheap food that most of us buy most of the time in supermarkets at the moment is the absence of the polluter pays principle. So, for instance, if you take an apparently cheap chicken, the chicken is causing damage in emissions, in antibiotics resistance because they're pumped full of antibiotics. And in other ways, the production of chicken is unsustainable. All the grain that's eating that perhaps we shouldn't be growing intensively or we should eat more grain ourselves, etc. Now, all those hidden costs are being paid for, for instance, through treatment costs in the National Health Service or uh, polluter pays uh, clean-up costs by the water companies. But that gives a distorted end price. So what we need is for the government to tax unsustainable practices and chemicals and recycle that money by paying farmers who are going to build soil carbon, increase biodiversity and farm in harmony with nature. 
that could be done. That's the great opportunity now. But it's not, as we touched on just now, the governments aren't going to do it unless they feel the electoral pressure. So we, the public who are listening to this podcast, need to exercise our power, not just by, as consumers, but also as citizens by urging the government to do more to support the transition to more sustainable food systems. And how in practical ways can we do that? Um, do, do we write to our MPs? We, know, we all know that we can all sit and protest in the streets for as long as we want. We can write endless letters and sign endless petitions, but they don't really seem to listen. And this is politicians, not Labour, not Conservatives, this is politicians on the whole seem to think that food is a sort of lifestyle thing, something to, with flower arranging and DIY. You know, it's of not huge importance to, to the, the health, wealth and happiness of the world. Do you feel that anybody in government is listening, the importance, the, the overall holistic importance of good food to the planet? That's such a brilliant question. It's the question of our time, because there's no doubt about it. Prime Minister Boris Johnson, as it happens to be at the moment, he does not think that doing more to support a transition towards more sustainable food and farming is going to get him re-elected. His priorities are to do with the economy, of course, and other more urgent issues at the moment. But we somehow need to alert him to this reality that unless we change our food and farming systems dramatically and in quite short order, farming is going to contribute towards irreversible climate change destruction of biodiversity, growing human health problems and growing food insecurity. All of those issues are really political. And if you think about the climate change debate, we all think that, as David Attenborough and others say, we've got to save the last remaining remnants of pristine wilderness like the rainforest. But the truth is, as a woman called Vandana Shiva reminded us all the other day, I rather admire her, she's an Indian campaigner. She said, the world used to be covered in pristine rainforests, but now it's covered in small farms or smaller, not so small farms. So if we don't change farming practice, we are not going to have a livable planet. Now that message, it comes right outside just DEFRA. It goes into public health. It goes into the climate change debate. And of course, it touches our lives with food security. So I think what we can do is we can act both as citizens by taking every opportunity to remind politicians of the importance of the debate about food and farming to climate change, for instance. But also, we can decide to exercise our buying power to make sure that at least a percentage of our weekly shopping basket comes from farms whose story we know. And if we go into Tesco or Sainsbury's or wherever we happen to shop and say to the customer service desk, uh, where does this tomato come from? how sustainable it is. I want to know more about it. That really gets up to the board very quickly. If a lot of us do that, or simply just take your custom elsewhere, if you cannot find out enough about the provenance of the food you eat, because that's the power of us as individual consumers. If the food system is a giant organism, we are its cells. And if we change and we elect to be more healthy, then the food system will follow us. I mean, that, that's utter truth. And, and it's, it's the difference of going to the supermarket at times or going to the farm shop where you know exactly where everything's come from. I mean, talking of great producers, this lockdown is shining a light on many, many great producers. Is there anyone in particular that you, you know, local to you that you like the way they farm or? There is actually. There's a, an old friend of mine. He was another back to the lander from London, a man called Peter Seger, who, and actually, when you come here, you must come and visit him. 
he with his partner Anne Evans has a 45 acre holding just down the road from here eight miles away they are now the longest established organic vegetable producer in Wales and he used to supply all the supermarkets with a lot of their organic vegetables in fact he was the sole supplier to Waitrose but then Waitrose along with all the other supermarkets decided that they would source all their organic vegetables from their conventional suppliers and they more or less took the shirt off his back but being a resilient sort of chap, he went back to his kind of hippie roots and decided that he would grow vegetables for Welsh customers. And today he's got an honesty box at the bottom of his drive. They sell at farmers markets all over Wales. And crucially, he's got a carbon negative vegetable production system with an acre and a half of polytunnels and 15 acres of field vegetables in a rotation which is two years of grass or clover and grass to build fertility, which he composts, and then a year of vegetables of, of about 50 different varieties. I have never seen, and I've traveled very widely, as you know, I have never seen a more inspiring and sustainable example of the sort of vegetable production that we all ought to be supporting because it, it's delicious food and it'll make us healthy. Completely right. So there is hope, Patrick. It's, it's... Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I tell you what, because I've been here 47 years, what is amazing is if you're on a place for a long time, you see the impact of your farming practices on outcomes on the farm. And this place is the soils are brimming with fertility. Uh, there is so much biodiversity in, in the pastures. The cattle look really well. The milk is delicious. You can tell that this system is building the natural capital of this area. It's beautiful, it's harmonious, and it's working, and the yields are actually going up, not down. So there's nothing particularly magical about what we're doing. We're just farming in, in harmony with nature. And of course, I've learned a bit along the road of being here for so many years and traveling widely, but I'm absolutely convinced that farming systems like this could be applied all over the world, regardless of the difference in soils, climate, scale of farms, etc. And we definitely could feed the world in a sustainable way. But we need to get going because of the threats of climate change and biodiversity loss and all the other things I mentioned. I mean, the power, as you said, is with us. It really is. And it's exciting for that reason. We don't need to feel disempowered by there's a lot of ignorance around a lot of confusion. But actually, there are good examples now of farming systems that can work. And by the way, you know, I mentioned Wales because we farm here. Interestingly enough, the Welsh government, and I was a bit gloomy about DEFRA, the Welsh government get all this stuff and they're about to introduce a new policy framework for supporting sustainable farming, which I think is going to be so good that DEFRA can just copy and paste it, frankly. So um, I've, I've mentioned this to Michael Gove, that I think that the Welsh scheme is rather good. And let's hope uh, that George Eustace, who's the current secretary, is listening. <laughs> well, listen, Patrick, thank you very, very much. Our time is coming towards then. At least there is hope. Um, but before we go, I'd like to run through a series of quick questions that we'll be asking each of our podcast guests. So are you ready for a few quick fire questions, Patrick? Have a go. OK, describe your perfect cup of tea. Well, it's in the morning. Uh, it's obviously organic tea. But I think the crucial thing is it's, you know, Alan Clark's diaries, he used to talk about EMT. There's something about a delicious cup of tea in the morning sitting outside the farmhouse uh, with uh, the best tea I can afford. Or I'm not a great expert, but something, something good. <laughs> Excellent. What's your most joyful memory when it comes to a meal? Definitely eaten here with all the ingredients 
having been grown on the farm, not because I'm ideological about it, but because there's something wonderful about being connected to the soil where you farm and where you live. I think it gives rise to the most amazing feeling of well-being and vitality when the food that you've eaten has something to do, you've had something to do with producing it. And that could be in your allotment. But here on the farm, it's particularly wonderful. Wonderful. I totally agree. What's the best way to eat bread? Well, fresh out of the oven, obviously. I'm a huge sourdough fan. We've had various attempts to um, initiate sourdough making, but my youngest son, James, who's only 13, went to Ballymaloo Cookery School last year. and He makes a delicious loaf of bread. And uh, I think fresh out of the oven with lashings of organic butter is the answer. Excellent. What's been your biggest disaster in the kitchen? Hmm. <laughs> oh, well, we've got an arger and... Uh, I'm, I rather like making lasagnas because we can do that with more or less everything except the pasta produced here. But uh, the other day, I unfortunately uh, left it in the hot oven too long and the result was very carbonaceous. <laughs> okay. uh, what music do you listen to when you cook at home? Bach. I'm a great, I'm a great lover of Bach. My, uh, my father introduced me to Bach when I was young and um, I love a good Bach cantata. Uh, not that I'm, I'm averse to listening to other music as well, because I come from the 60s, but um, I think classical music is, is where I, my roots really go. This is another, what is your guilty food pleasure? It doesn't have to be guilty. I don't think there should be guilt about food. But if, if there were such a thing as a guilty food pleasure, what might it be? Hmm. Well, it's uh, yeah, not so guilty. I'll tell you, one of the most delicious meals we've ever had here that didn't come from the farm was Cardigan Bay mackerel. Ooh, yeah. They're quite small and sweet. And I love to fillet them, put a little bit of flour and salt and pepper, and then cook them in butter. They are just beyond delicious. I love, I love mackerel. Finally, if you were hosting a dinner party, that's this old chestnut again, and could invite three people, who do you invite to your table and why, besides your family? Oh, well, I've got to invite you because you've not been here. Okay. Uh, so you're on the guest list. <laughs> Thanks, Frank. Um, Another chap who's spent a lot of time here, who's got a, who actually has a small holding adjacent to Peter Seger, is John Humphreys. And he has been here many times. And we've had, as you know, he's a pretty combative sort of chap. We have had horrendous arguments around the dinner table uh, because he always plays devil's advocate. But for all that, I'm rather fond of him because he actually has a good heart and believes in what we're trying to do. So I like to, um, I like to have a good conversation around the dinner table. He can join us, but now we need a, a woman to balance it up. Now, who will that be? I think we'll leave, we'll leave that open. A nice, but well, I'd be very quiet at that, at that dinner if it was you and John Humphreys, I'll tell you that much. But anyway, that's it for now. Thank you so much, Patrick. And I know that I speak on behalf of our audience to say that it's been hugely insightful. And as ever with you, we could talk for hours and hours and hours, but this is a podcast and it's supposed to be a, a set limit of time. So anyway, I hope we can invite you back in the not too distant future. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Tom. And I really do think we need to, uh, when all this nonsense and travel stuff recedes, do come to Wales. I will be there. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm dreaming of, of, of travel like we all are. Anyway, thanks again, Patrick. And thank you to everyone who's tuned in today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast series, Fortnum's Hungry Minds, to hear conversations and lively debate around new ideas, knowledge and the joy of real food. <laughs>